Welcome to The Single Source, a podcast series brought to you by global financial service provider Apex Group. The Single Source hosts a diverse mix of industry veterans, rising stars, finance experts and investment enthusiasts to discuss all things financial services, as well as the things that really matter to Apex, because we are more than just a financial services provider and are here to drive positive change for a more sustainable future in the industry. Hi, Blair McPherson, Head of Capital Introductions at Apex Group, and I'm very pleased to have a conversation today with Oliver Shaw, who's Associate Editor and Lead Writer at the Sunday Times. Oliver, how are you? Uh, very well, thank you, as far as I know. <laughs> Good. We're having this conversation surrounded by events that are not ordinary for those who perhaps have not experienced or studied the past. We've exited, in most countries, the COVID pandemic, although picking up in some areas. There is a war in Ukraine, many geopolitical and economic impacts, inflation, now that is broadening, interest rates rising in response, supply chain issues, energy security and transition issues, and that could go on. And these are all topics that you have covered in your paper over time. So I really appreciate just having your views and maybe even reference some of your articles, which I found of interest in. Our owners of capital and allocators of capital in our network are always searching for insight and for those who really are talking to the people on the ground and doing the research. So it's always really refreshing. So again, thanks for your time, Oliver. I suppose to start off, how would you encapsulate what you're seeing today from 50,000 feet? Well, I think you're right in terms of the introduction and the range of issues you mentioned. And if you go back, I mean, if you think about the UK in particular, or if you put UK in the centre of the world, which we do at the Sunday Time, you've had political instability since 2014-ish, really. That was a Scottish referendum. With the advent of the Scottish referendum, you saw some of the first tastes of nationalism, which bore more fruit in the form of Donald Trump and Brexit a few years later. Then you had Brexit. Then you had several years of turmoil where David Cameron resigned. Uh, Theresa May tried to hold together a coalition and a more moderate Brexit deal that fell apart. Boris Johnson came in and then we had COVID and all the challenges associated with several lockdowns and the economy being shut down and huge state intervention and blah, blah, blah. And then we come out of that and we go straight into Ukraine, Russia, inflation, all the energy issues that uh, the Ukraine crisis has exacerbated. So I would agree with the premise of your opening remarks that we've been through quite extraordinary turmoil for the past eight years. And uh, you know, there's no sign of that letting up. And that throws up all kinds of interesting questions for boards, investors, companies in terms of how you how you navigate and, and what, what normal even looks like anymore. Yeah, also well, kind of from the centre UK of the world view, but I'm really interested in how the institutions are holding up from your perspective, but it's political institutions, corporate institutions, legal institutions. How are you finding them holding up to these stresses as you're talking to people? Yeah, it's a great question. I would say they have mostly just about held together, but I think you saw Parliament tested to its absolute limits with Brexit. I mean, even the starting point of Brexit was an extra parliamentary referendum, wasn't it? So you saw parliamentary authority being undermined by the rise of referendums, Scotland and Brexit. And then uh, you saw a decision taken outside Parliament and Parliament having to somehow square the circle and come to terms with that, and push it through. And you've seen that just about just about hold together. Although on things like the Northern Ireland Protocol, really, it's using cheats and holding things together with sellotape to do it. And you've seen the judiciary tested with the prorogation of Parliament and debate around the limits of how much judges can get involved in things. 
in companies. I think actually the private sector is the one that has come through in best shape, funnily enough, although it's had to bear a lot of the short-term burden in terms of Brexit red tape, immigration problems, lockdowns. You know, by its nature, it's more dynamic. It's more easily adaptable. It's not held to the same accountability in many ways as the public sector or government is. And uh, I think boards have generally emerged through functioning okay and performing okay. Now, a couple of your recent articles, great titles, Handbags at Dawn, Ripflation Will Stoke the Wrath of Hard-Pressed Consumers. Can you dive into that a little bit? Yeah, this was this weekend's article and uh, the Handbags at Dawn tagline referred to Chanel because the theme I was taking was asking whether some companies have been using the smokescreen or the environment of rapid price rises everywhere to push through inflationary increases that aren't really needed for them. So given how consumers are so overwhelmed by how many prices are rising everywhere, they're not keeping track of things as much as they might otherwise have been. And certain brands are using this time to reposition themselves as Chanel has been, or just reinforce margins as other companies have been. And you think about Netflix, Disney Plus, the price of these are all going up pretty steeply. And I can't see their Input costs have been affected in the same way as, say, a sandwich maker or um, a staff heavy business. So Chanel is the case study the article is based around and that French luxury brands increased the price of handbags on average by 71% since 2019. So don't tell me that that's all leather, labor costs, transportation costs, all that kind of thing. That's them using this period of turmoil where a lot of things are up in the air and people are losing track of exactly where pricing is to reposition themselves and try and become more of a Hermes and less of a Louis Vuitton or a Gucci, trying to push into a new price bracket. And that's an extreme example. And obviously people who buy Chanel handbags can probably, they're not sort of milk or eggs, are they? They're not essential goods, but it's a sort of far out example of what's been going on. Yeah, no, it's interesting. And I was trying uh, to see how there are patterns or things connected. If you look at the amount of cash sitting on the sidelines because of COVID, whether it's people not traveling, lots of cash to spend. So in the luxury goods area, art area, it's interesting how people, even though, again, not the wealthiest of the wealthy, do have cash to perhaps have a luxury to spend on. It's interesting. We've really got a topsy-turvy economy right now, I think, where you've got your corporate earnings in the US and the UK at record levels, CEO pay in many cases at record levels, equity markets have recovered all their, all their losses since the start of the Ukraine crisis, the COVID crisis is long forgotten by equity markets, and then you've got real problems on the ground in underlying industries, you know, companies struggling with all these things we mentioned, so many legitimate inflationary pressures coming through. And, and then you've got consumers, as you say, having stockpile cash through COVID still be okay. Labor markets being very tight. So it's a really weird overall picture. Yeah. And certainly the whole dialogue when connecting valuations in the market, whether it's looking at the tech stops, stocks and looking at the potential interest rates that affect this kind of cash flow valuations to now oil companies doing very well and generating lots of cash and dividends for potential capex. I know if you kind of looked at the deployment of capital and kind of moving into that ESG area with regards to the energy transition, and perhaps we've moved a bit too quickly on, on adjusting our energy security and supply on that journey to net zero. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think rising interest rates you mentioned, plus Ukraine, have been a bit of a reset in the balance between optimism and expectations of the future and growth in general, and then value and reality and here and now. And, you know, we've seen Shell, BP, Glencore, these kind of stocks rally up, um, HSBC, bank stocks rallying. You've seen 
defense companies, BAE systems and others rallying. And you've seen big sell-offs in things like Meta and um, some of the US growthy tech stocks. I personally think there's been that slight rotation and it is financially in terms of interest rates. And I think some of the things, ESG-driven renewables, a lot of these things fall into the growth side of things in that they're about delivery far into the future. They're about narrative rather than reality right now. And they're all sort of hopes and dreams kind of things. And I think we've seen a rebalancing away from that but I think there are big secular trends that aren't going to change that in long, long, long term. So, you know, I think I would still be a buyer of US tech from rebased levels on the basis that, you know, the sort of things they're playing into metaverse, digitization of e-commerce, still globalization. These things are they're on, on pause or at least slowing down a lot for the moment. And there's better short term value in oil majors, arms companies, these kind of things. But I do think long term, you know, renewables. All these things are going to pay off. It's just a question of where the emphasis is. And I think there's been a bit of a rebalancing, which is not unhelpful in terms of valuations and expectations. I think the innovation will never stop when it gets into the tech. But I was reading an interesting Dieter Helm, who's professor of economic policy at University of Oxford, did a paper with regards to actually these bad companies, oil, gas companies. They're the ones who can redeploy capital effectively into the renewable, change their businesses. And they're the, the size, the scale and the cash to actually invest in the future. So it's interesting of people kind of realizing, oh, okay, it's, this will be very expensive. Who can pay for it? The old companies are part of the solution, perhaps. Yeah, and I think there's been some fairly facile, babyish thinking in recent years around ESG and some of these companies, you know, saying that Philip Morris shouldn't be allowed to buy Vectura or saying that Shell and BP shouldn't be allowed to invest in renewables or should split themselves in half. As you say, these companies are the ones with the resources and the PR problem and the urgent need to invest in transitional technologies, whether it's healthcare or renewable energy. These are the companies that have the impetus and the uh, skill set and the money to do it. That slightly reductive ESG narrative is fine in a super bullish market where money flows endlessly into ideas that have massively long dated payoff in you know 30 50 years time i think your argument is right suddenly people think actually we do need these shells and bps after all the big dividend payers big employers and they can be a force in this and i think the bursting of that esg bubble because i do think it has birth to a degree and uh, you know it's not a coincidence that it's burst alongside the growth bubble because these things are both about narratives and they're both about you know, lofty promises. I think that's a positive thing. And it means we get real about taking action in the nearer term. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so speaking of long term, you wrote an article, if we're no longer mates with China, it will cost us. So obviously China is a very long term horizon. Can you talk to me about that a little bit? Yeah, this was looking at how intertwined the West is with China in terms of trade and raising the prospect that not just uh, Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin's friendship without limits and their growing axis of autocracy. But, you know, you look back over recent years from the disappearance of high profile figures in China, including some of the very top, the Alibaba founder. Um, yeah, Ma. Yeah, exactly, Jack Ma. Th- through to, you know, regulatory crackdowns out of the blue on education, tech. China is becoming more rather than less autocratic and unpredictable it's becoming more hostile as an environment for Western companies to invest in. You know, you can lose massive amounts of capital. I had breakfast this morning with a guy, American-based guy, who was a big investor in a Chinese education company, was teaching Chinese kids English as a second language, and for a while did very well and was wiped out overnight. They lost about 500 million of equity, he said, gone up in smoke. And I think these, these risks are rising a lot for companies. And also there's 
PR risks in the West. If China were to do something dramatic around Taiwan, for example, you could have real pressure from governments and consumers in the West around what are you doing on your China supply chain. So I think we're facing a long period of unwinding and decoupling from China. It won't be overnight. Even at the moment, there are still companies from the West going in there, aren't there? And bigger numbers, you know, BlackRock, Schroders, Fidelity, these big wealth managers are still going, I think, the wrong way in terms of the geopolitical risks they're exposing themselves to. But I think we're going to have a pulling apart that's going to be quite painful. Yeah, it's interesting. We kind of started the conversation around strength of institutional structures. And I think the strength of English law, which was taken for granted of how powerful that is when you're allocating capital is critical. That um, when you're deploying capital, it's safe and you won't have changes unexpected. And then the Chinese, whether it's in Hong Kong, changing some of their judicial rules for US listed companies on transparency. So it'll be interesting going forward. So I'm, I'm just conscious of time, uh, Oliver. Is there one or two things you think that you're looking at that should be looked at that people aren't? I suppose in terms of the big themes we're thinking about, you mentioned inflation. I think that's got a massively long way to play out in terms of the pressure on companies, how consumers react. I and mean, as I pointed out, earnings are still very fat in the US and the UK. And how much will consumers suck up price rises being pushed onto them and how much will they take their own action by buying less or shopping around? Are we going to see new challenges come in as we did in 2008-9? Take retail, which is the industry I used to cover and know quite well. Um, you know, Aldi Little had been there before 2008-9, but they'd not really got traction. They'd even thought about pulling out, or at least one of them had in recent years. And then they were turbocharged by the financial crisis and made huge inroads and really shook up that industry. I think across the UK and the US, there's scope for more challenges in all kinds of areas. We're thinking about cost of living, which is linked to that politics, where government goes in terms of tax spending the various pressures on Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor. We're interested in innovation of all kinds. So, you know, the person I saw this morning, I was talking to about these rapid grocery delivery apps, which to me looks like a bonfire of capital, you know, billions of funds being raised for incredibly low margin things, which your consumers benefit from. And uh, I'm surprised that bandwagon is still rolling with quite the pace it is given that rotation we talked about and the, the cooling appetite for some of these super risky growth things but i think um whether one of those can survive and start reshaping retail is going to be really interesting i think starlink elon musk's broadband project is super interesting could you see a massive risk to the whole physical infrastructure of broadband bt open reach virgin sky from something like that in the next 10 20 years you know even things like hs2 which we've been advocates on the paper of just getting it done and starting to build and stop prevaricating but um could you see some kind of airborne solution in the next 10 years 15 years you wouldn't bet against that i don't think given what people like ovo group stephen fitzpatrick are doing like vertical takeoff and landing so uh, we're interested in all that stuff from politics and here and now and ESG and the practical issues facing companies and boards through to that more moonshot innovation stuff. We're very interested in where the balance should lie between the two, because I think we've been tilted way too far towards the sort of moonshot stuff past five, 10 years. And that rebalance we talked about is, is welcome. Well, great, Oliver. We look forward to reading your columns and those of your colleagues. So I appreciate your time and hopefully we'll speak again. Thank you for hosting, Blair. Cheers, Oliver.